right, so welcome to the Owl Podcast. This is your host, Jerry, and I'm here as always with Jameson. Jameson, how are you? Good, man. How are you doing? Good. Uh, so we're here today recording the first podcast of the new year, and we thought we'd start off with a couple of you know non-controversial topics. I think we'd like to hit on Syria and Trump's recent announcement that he'd like to pull out troops from Syria. And the other one is the controversy going on with the YouTuber known as Sargon of Akkad, also known as Carl Benjamin, and his recent removal from Patreon and the response from popular YouTubers and podcast hosts and their subsequent removal of their accounts from Patreon. Yeah, sounds good. Cool. So yeah, I think uh, let's lead it off with the announcement that Trump is going to remove troops from Syria. I guess your initial impressions, just a brief overview um, what are your thoughts on, one, the intervention in Syria? Why do you think we went in to Syria? Or why do you think we you know, intervened in Syria in the first place? Do you think it was a good idea, bad idea? Kind of just your initial thoughts on Syria. Yeah, I've kind of gone back and forth on Syria a little bit. Um, you know, at first I wasn't 100% sure why we were going in there. Uh, everybody talked about it. It was basically to stop the spread of ISIS. Um because they were getting pretty strong foothold up there, especially when they were fighting the Kurds. And, uh, <clears throat> I don't know, it just seemed like it was such a, uh, I don't know, like a Vietnam situation where it just didn't seem like it was winnable to an extent. But the more and more that I did a, some research on it, I, I feel like it kind of started to make a little more sense, the U.S. involvement. I mean, I don't think Obama handled it particularly well, especially with um, him keeps, you know, trying to draw that line in the sand with uh, with Russia and, you know, just basically not even holding up to his side of the deal, just basically backing down when they kind of, you know, put their toes over the line. But the more and more, like I said, I did some research. I think it was a good thing that the Russian, or that, excuse me, the United States had some intervention. And I can get into some more details why, but, I mean, one of the biggest ones is I think that the Kurds definitely needed some more some more help because they were they were kind of in a really tough situation, especially with having to fight ISIS, um, the rebels, you know, Assad's army, um, you know, Russian bombings, and then of course they were kind of they really didn't have much of a place to go because the closest place they could have gone was into Turkey, and Turkey isn't a big fan of them either. So I just you know I felt bad for them, and I think that the United States in the long run might have made the good choice in helping them out because they really didn't have many other options so I think that was good but the other reasons I think it was good is obviously you know we wanted to stop the spread of ISIS um, they were starting to get pretty extreme their foothold was getting pretty pretty significant in both Iraq and in uh, uh, Syria and I think anything we could do to essentially kind of put the kibosh on that is a good thing which is why I which is one of the reasons I should say I don't necessarily feel great about the US doing a troop withdrawal there um, because they have it, you know, everybody keeps saying in politics, we've defeated ISIS. No, I mean, they're still, they still have a strong enough presence. Granted, it's not what it was a couple of years ago or anything during the Arab summer, but, or the Arab spring, excuse me. But I don't know, it just, anything they can do to essentially just eradicate that little terrorist group, I think would be for the benefit. And I, I know it's probably never going to be completely eradicated, but I still feel like they have a strong enough presence that it needs to, still needs to be addressed and that troop presence from the United States still needs to be there. The other reason I think that the United States shouldn't pull out is because, one, Iran is now involved with uh, Syria. And I think, I think that's, you know, a good reason to keep U.S. troop presence there. But the other, but the biggest reason is it'll be essentially like a foothold for Russia in the Middle East and letting Russia kind of expand their influence and their power and their, I don't know, just political ideologies in the Middle East. And I don't think that's a very good thing for, I don't, I don't know, for the United States, especially with Israel being one of the closest allies that the United States has in uh, the Middle East and they're being right there connected to Syria. I would like to see that I don't want to see a Russian influence so close to Israel either. Does that all kind of make sense? That touches on a few topics. Um, I guess I would just explain my foreign policy, which we haven't really touched on in the podcast, but 
I guess it's a good, it's a good segue into any. it. Yeah. Uh, so my foreign policy is heavily shaped, especially when it concerns dictators, um, by a book by Samantha Power called uh, Oh man, what's that book that she wrote? It was a book on genocide, but it was uh, a problem from hell. And she kind of wrote that monumental piece on five significant genocides of the 20th century. So it touched on obviously the Holocaust and the, how the term originated. And then she touched on Cambodia. She touched on the Iraq genocide of the Kurdish people. Um, she touched on the Muslim genocide in uh, Bosnia. And then she touched on I'm drawing a blank on a few of the other ones. But anyway, she touched on five genocides that happened throughout the 20th century and basically how the apathy and the unwillingness of American Congress and American public to intervene kind of allowed that genocide to happen. Um, so move forward to 2011. Samantha Powers, now the ambassador to the UN for the United States. You know, she is one of the key figures in foreign policy. And the Arab Spring, as you mentioned, breaks out, right? Mohammed Bouazizi lights himself on fire. The uproar in, or the revolt in Tunisia happens. And then from there, pretty much every other Arab country strongly advocates for democracy. So in Syria, when this you know, democratic uprising starts happening, Assad basically starts to commit violence against the Syrian people in, in these uprisings. You lump in to the Syrian uprising the or the leaving of America or the removal of US troops from Iraq and you lump that in with the rise of ISIS and now you have an entire mess in Syria, right? Mm -hmm. So what you had from 2011 in Syria onward was Assad repressing the people of Syria for a democratic movement and you had the rise of the Islamic State, much of which was promulgated and made easier by Assad, right? He, he would funnel jihadists into Iraq. And a lot of the insurgents or the jihadists were spent time in Syrian prisons and spent a lot of time in Syria, but that's a different subject. So anyway, you know, you move forward, 2012, 2013, the death toll just starts to rise dramatically. And so it was at this point that I thought the United States should intervene, intervene not against the Islamic State, because the Islamic State wasn't a thing yet, right? It hadn't declared a caliphate. It was at this time when we could very clearly see that Assad was repressing and committing by any metric genocide against the Syrian people, right? It was at this time that we should intervene. And sadly, the, the lack of I guess support for that intervention came at the heels of, of you know, that finally withdrawing from Iraq, right? And so that's why, I've, if I've explained myself right, it's just I've always been in support of intervention when I think genocide is, is obviously clear. And I don't think that that's a very popular opinion, but that's when I think we should have intervened in Syria. And now I think we, we finally intervened a little bit too late but you know, we did remove the Islamic State, and that was you know, kind of a secondary goal and turned into a primary goal. But right now, I don't think we should have left Syria, mostly because of what you said about the Kurdish people, but also because Assad is still in power and he's still killing people. So, well, and I would agree with that. I mean, especially what he did in Aleppo. I mean that that was just. I mean, he used chemical weapons there. I mean, he obviously has used chemical weapons on his own people, I think even in Damascus, but uh, I could be wrong on that one. But I don't know. I agree with you. I don't think that he is a good um, person to have in power right now. And like I said, I don't like the fact that Russia is essentially his one of his closest allies, if not his closest ally, and that their footprint is now getting a little bit bigger in in Syria, and like I said, I just I could see that essentially expanding into more places within the Middle East as well. And I'm kind of more of a I don't know. I guess my my foreign policy is maybe a little bit more isolationist than than yours. But I agree with you on the fact that I do think that there are some aspects where the United States should step in, and when especially when it comes to mass genocides and things of like chemical um, chemical weapons being deployed that or 
places that are trying to develop weapons of or weapons of mass destruction, I, I could definitely see some intervention uh, being necessary, especially from the United States at that point, just because that they yeah, are essentially he, biggest, baddest kid on the block at that point. And Assad, by every metric, crossed every line that the United Nations said shouldn't be crossed, right? That he used chemical weapons, he attacked a, a specific group of people, right? It's just every line in the sand that we drew was just basically it, it was meaningless right it just we said that we weren't going to tolerate chemical weapons and he used chemical weapons and we have right the famous white phosphorus right we have videos we have evidence and he's just been allowed to get away with so much and it's only because of how hesitant the american people were to intervene in another country and in a country that they really don't understand right it's just syria is a just somewhere on the map that people can't point out mm -hmm. just seems like another pointless war that America is going to get involved in. But when you look at the casualties and you look at the videos, it just, how can you not at the very least be motivated to stop somebody like Bashar Assad? And then, and then you throw in the, you know, the, the political and geographical realities of Iran being a strong ally of Syria, right? You have Vladimir Putin, being a strong ally of Syria, right? And these are these are problematic when you consider how heavily Iran funds jihadist groups, right? The, the biggest one being Hezbollah, but they also fund jihadi groups in Iraq, right? Mm -hmm. And they fund jihadi groups in Syria and throughout Yemen and across the world. So the more we can do to deter Iran, the more we can do to deter people like Bashar Assad and any future megalomaniac, right? I think that that's a, a net positive for the world. Agreed. And like I said, I, I feel like at this point, I kind of agree with where General Mattis was when he essentially resigned, saying that he feels that the president has, you know, obviously the right to have somebody that's more aligned with his uh, political views. But he, he really said that we need to support our allies. And I think that is a point that he was trying to make in Syria right there. Like the Kurds at this point are our allies. We need to support them. And backing out of Syria right now is definitely not supporting our allies. And the other thing that kind of, I don't know, kind of made me a little bit more pro keep our troops in Syria is that shortly before uh, Trump made the announcement of pulling the troops out of Syria, there was a big uh, deal made between uh, Turkey and the United States as far as a weapons deal where they were going to be selling them uh, a couple billion dollars worth of, probably more than that, but um, worth of weapons and things like that and I think it sounds like part of the deal was to essentially have the troops pull out of Iraq to essentially get this, or not Iraq, excuse me, Syria to get this job done. And I don't like the thought of the United States essentially being pigeon-held to a country like Turkey by pulling troops out of Syria because it benefits not only, or because it benefits you know, Turkey since they do not like the Kurds and the United States are backing up the Kurdish people. So I just think that that's another, I don't know, shitty move by the United States right there. Yeah, definitely. And I think I think we should back up a little bit. The for people that don't know, the Kurdish people are an ethnically diverse or ethnically different group of people in what you would know as northern Iraq, north eastern Syria, southern Turkey, and kind of the western part of Iran. They're just kind of mingled in there. And when the Middle East was carved up by after World War One, right? It, the Kurds never got basically their own state. Right? It was just carved up into Syria, Iraq, and the Kurds never got that chance to have their own state. So for the longest time, there's been a, a Kurdish independence movement and finally culminating in Iraqi Kurdistan being a semi-sovereign state allowed to kind of rule over itself. And for the longest time, the Kurds have been kind of the pawn of American foreign policy, or most famously with Henry Kissinger, who later turned his back on them, and now with what Jameson was saying about Trump, right? And so, and, and to bring in what Erdogan is doing there with, with the president of Turkey, right? So the president of Turkey thinks that the Kurdish right, insurrection or or rise or, or claims to sovereignty is, is, is an affront or a, a act of war against Turkey. So Erdogan, by making a deal with them wants to suppress the Kurdish people and 
pretty much wiped them off the map, or at least from the borders of Turkey. Um, tell you, you, you bring up a, or sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, in essence, it sounds like almost another genocide, too. Yeah, it, it can be another genocide waiting to happen. Um, this is one of the, the strong debate, or at least one of the talking points that Hillary Clinton had brought up during the debates, right, where she wanted to set up a no-fly zone, right, to pretty much protect Kurdistan, right, where Erbil and all of the borders. So, yeah, I, I totally agree that we shouldn't have pulled out of Syria. I think that General Mattis was right, and the Kurdish people, again, sadly get fucked over, and then they have to turn to more unsavory allies and people that they would rather not you know, become allies with. But I think just to, to backtrack a little bit also, I, I I don't want people to get the confusion that I'm some kind of a interventionist or a jingoist. I'm not, I don't take intervention lightly. I don't think that the U.S. should just be the world police. I think we should intervene when it's clearly needed, when there's megalomaniacs like Saddam Hussein or Bashar Assad right, committing clear atrocities. That's when I think we should intervene. And we have the military might and the political might to make these things happen, right? And so I just don't want people to get the wrong impression that I'm some kind of gung-ho interventionist, right? No, that makes sense. You know, and uh, another thought kind of occurred to me, and, <clears throat> you know, in what you said, one of the things you said kind of made me think of this, but back during the 1980s when Russia invaded Afghanistan, uh, one of the biggest allies of the Afghan people that essentially were kind of like the rebel groups to fight the... Uh, the invading Russians was the United States. You know, we armed them, we trained them, we gave them, you know, money, weapons, you name it. And essentially, over that period of the there in the 1980s, the uh, the Afghans essentially fought, um, you know, guerrilla tactics with the Russians, got them out of Afghanistan after I can't remember, maybe four or five years, could have been longer than that, but. When that happened, uh, they kind of turned to the United States at that point, saying, like, yay, we got our country back, you know, we still could use some help, and the United States essentially turned their back on them. Um, backed out, you know, when they had the opportunity to go in there and build schools, help, uh, set up a steady government, um, a democracy, things of that nature. So it was definitely a mistake by the United States. But the point I'm making or, or getting to is that it created essentially, essentially hostilities between the uh, the Afghanistan people and the United States at that point, which is what allowed for things like Osama bin Laden to come in and set, set up um, you know, Al-Qaeda and the Taliban and things of that nature. And I can kind of see something like this happening again with the, with the Kurds at this point. We're once again abandoning them. They want our help. And this is going to just leave another bad taste in their mouth. So essentially down the road, we could be looking at potentially making another enemy. I don't know if they'll ever get to the potential strength that like Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, or anything like that happen. But I just... I don't think that's very good for the United States at that point to turn their back on their allies and essentially make another enemy that down the road could turn around and just bite us. Does that make sense? Hmm. Yeah, it does. I think the analogy doesn't work great because, one, when you're looking at the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, that communism was a much bigger problem at the time than Islamic insurgencies or jihadi groups, right? Okay. And when we left Afghanistan, there was a power vacuum, but that was mostly because Afghanistan was very tribal. And that power vacuum, pretty much the power was consolidated in the southeastern area of, of Afghanistan where, where the Pashtun people live, right? Mm -hmm. So this is where you have, this is on the border of, of Afghanistan and Pakistan. This is where you have, um, uh, I'm drawing a blank on the name, Islamabad. Um, but anyway, the Pashtun people, from the Pashtun people, this is from Kandahar, right? The Pashtun people come, the what we know as the Taliban. This is with uh, Mullah Omar, who in 1990 and 1991, 92, right, starts the Taliban. And this Islamic insurgency group gained a lot of training and power because of that insurgency. But it's not, the analogy doesn't make a, a ton of sense because Kurdistan is very different, right? Kurdistan is, is a very secular kind of left-leaning group of people. The Kurds have obviously a lot of Muslims, but the, there's not the same kind of Islamic insurgency or hardliners that you have in Afghanistan. You don't have that kind of same 
mentality in, in Kurdistan, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's where I think you could create an enemy, and I could see how that would happen, but you don't you don't have that same Islamic ideology, the same jihadist ideology that you had one with the Taliban and two with Osama bin Laden taking advantage of the fact that Afghanistan was kind of this anarchist state, right? There was no government. It was basically just the Taliban who had taken over. And Osama bin Laden took advantage of that to make his own little seminar. And bin Laden had their own issues, right? They didn't trust each other for the longest time. But at the very least, bin Laden was granted harbor or safe haven. But yeah, I see what you mean. I think the biggest thing is just from a foreign policy perspective is just how how can oh hold on here to work with people on the ground you broke up right there uh, about a minute ago i think just the uh can you hear me now yeah i i think just the biggest thing is you know how do you expect people to trust you if you're always reneging on your word right it's just you can't keep using people that way you just if you're gonna if you're gonna promise safety or if you're gonna promise your alliance to people right that matters in the world and and you can't expect people to work with you or you know do business with you if you if you just keep reneging on your word right and so we have a lot of issues in the world and there are there are there are movements that we should support and we should back but if if those people in those movements throughout countries were that are problematic if they see that the US can't be trusted to continue to be an ally how are those people supposed to take that risk right a great example of this is the protests and you know, mass protests that happened throughout Iran almost about a year ago right when Trump said that he was pulling out of the Iran deal right and so Nikki Haley gets up there and says to the Iranian people you know we have your back you're our allies we no matter what happens we're not going to stand with the mullahs trump gets up there and you know lambas you know, ayatollah Khomeini, and the rest of the mullahs and basically with that confidence the people of iran were able to come up and basically mass protest so it's kind of the same same thing here right it's just i don't understand how we're supposed to i don't understand how we're supposed to work with people in the world if we're always going to renege on our deals yeah and i guess i don't know you're right you just shooting down my theory there of the whole Afghanistan thing, so that's okay. But, uh, <laughs> but no, that's. I guess I was just trying to get to the point. Like, I don't feel like it's beneficial to the United States to essentially, anytime that there's an opportunity that they could go in there, help, and keep a good U.S. presence and, a, you know, keep a positive impact in the, in the Middle East, instead we just turn our backs on them. I just feel like that's going to create more enemies than anything, I guess was the point I was trying to get to with that. And yeah and yeah you kind of summed it up with saying like how are people going to be able to view us if they're going to come to us for help but they feel like oh well the united states is the kind of has the reputation of you know backing out on their deals or the u.s people don't seem to support it so they'll throw a hissy fit and then they'll get out of syria or they'll get out of iraq or afghanistan or whatever so i guess that's yeah kind of where i was going there so how do you feel about people that say, for example, we shouldn't be the world police or that no, I agree. interventions are wrong? Or I agree that we shouldn't be the world police. And I, I honestly think that Muslim countries and other countries and stuff like that should be, should be able to hold each other a lot more accountable instead of having the United States intervene. You know, there are some countries in the... Middle East that I feel like do do hold enough military power and political weight that if they were to intervene it would make a difference and the United States essentially wouldn't have to. Um, not this is not saying that I agree with like their politics by any means because I definitely don't, especially when it comes to places like Saudi Arabia, which I feel like could have the most influence in the Middle East and it does have the military backing. But I'm just saying they're you know they could essentially do their own interventions if need be, but. I don't know. I, I don't think that it's always up to the United States to come in there and try to save the day just because it does cost the United States a lot of money and it does cost the United States a lot of, you know, military personnel, which is not always the best thing. But if, you know, a situation like Syria where mass genocide was going on, um, Iran, you know, who's known to harbor terrorists and fund terrorism, 
gets involved. Russia, who essentially has always had it out for the United States, gets it involved. And you have a president, like, just drew a blank on his name all of a sudden, um, president of Syria. Um, Assad? Yes, thank you. Who's clearly a lunatic and who, you know, probably closely re-identifies more with somebody like Saddam Hussein or Osama bin Laden than he does with, like, a, you know, I don't know, name a sane person, but... I feel like that absolutely the United States should step in, especially when there are people that are getting killed in mass numbers and that are coming to the United States begging for help. That absolutely makes sense, but I don't feel like we should be stepping in every little time somebody stubs their toe, you know? Does that make sense? Yeah. No, it does. I think, well, one, I think that I think we're never going to escape what happens in the world. And I, this is the biggest argument that I have against just complete isolationist, right? It's just Syria changed the entire scenery of politics, especially throughout the United States and Europe, right? Because you had the Syrian migrants, because you had millions of people trying to find you know, refugee or refuge somewhere, that changed global politics. So if whether or not you care about genocide, which Granted, not to sound callous, but a lot of people don't, right? Um, if it's not happening in their the, own backyard, they really don't care. Yeah, and so I, I think at the very least, what people can acknowledge is that it's going to it's going to affect you one way or another, right? So the Syrian genocide and the rise of ISIS affected American politics. You had a very right wing rise and and anxiety because of because people saw. Syrians and Muslims entering their country and you know, according to Trump we weren't able to vet them properly and according to the noises that Obama and Hillary were making they couldn't even they couldn't even acknowledge that Islam was a problem right and so that is that is obviously just conducive to anxiety especially if you're on the right wing or if you're hesitant about immigration right and so the, the Syrian genocide affected politics, and, and people need to understand that. And so I think in, in before, before we let things escalate, we need a commitment to the rest of the world where it's not just military operations, but we need a commitment to pressure countries that have horrible human rights abuses, China, Saudi Arabia. We need to be able to pressure them politically and economically so that they do get their behavior correct, so that we don't end up always in these situations where we have to respond militarily, right? And that starts now. That starts with somebody like Trump who needs to pressure these countries to get their act right, and we don't wait for the next atrocity, like somewhere like Yemen or Syria, for example. Sure. And a, a thought occurred kind of when you were talking about that. I feel like it's important for other countries like our allies for example you know great britain france germany um you know some of our stronger allies like that to essentially start condoning some of the actions of you know these countries like syria yemen or saudi arabia where they're actually committing these mass you know genocides or these just atrocious human right violations but they always feel like that they have to stand behind the united states and essentially let the united states try and strong arm these other countries into saying like what you're doing is wrong i feel like if we had a lot more backing from some of our allies that were saying you know things like yeah we we condone what you're doing we don't think it's right um and we think these human right violations are absolutely atrocious you know just so it's a lot more it's a louder voice as opposed to just coming from the united states more often if does that make sense like i feel like yeah no i, I to, totally agree yeah i feel like the world needs to essentially be looking more at these other countries like like i said china saudi arabia stuff like that and really just start having the world strong on them as opposed to just having it yeah be the united states yeah we need a a paris climate agreements of that same magnitude of you know where the world is in agreement we need that same level of cooperation with the rest of the world where we don't tolerate human rights abuses and we can call out the hypocrisy right where if a Saudi Arabia commits to, you know, better human rights, right? They say, okay, well, we're no longer gonna 
behead people, right? Sure. They're not going to still women in the streets. (laughs) Yeah, right? We need to be able to call them out, and we need to be able to apply that pressure, right? And so, yeah, I totally agree. We need the world, and if the West is going to lead it, then fine, but we need people to be able to lead, and we need a long-term commitment so that it doesn't doesn't just come down to the whims of every president in the United States. Yeah, completely agree. Um, Hold on one second. Jeffy, stop here. Um, no, and I just, I feel like so many countries just kind of feel like they can hide behind the United States because they know that the United States essentially is the world police so that they don't have to essentially get their hands dirty. And that just kind of bums me out because it shouldn't always be our responsibility to be that, I don't know, that, that big kid on the block. We need to have essentially everybody just have the balls to, to stand up and just speak out what they believe is wrong and i just don't feel like there's enough countries out there that are willing to do that so yeah no i definitely agree no. I <coughs> you've kind of studied syria a lot more than than i have um it's only been kind of something i've been really diving into maybe the last few months but i don't know do you feel like there's anything about what we've talked about that we've kind of missed that we need to hit upon more is there anything that really concerns you like about the united states pulling out more than just maybe the possibility of ISIS regaining a foothold, um, you know, Russia having a presence there, anything like that? Well, I think the biggest thing or the biggest criticism that I get or that I hear is people seem to think, and they, they, they think this when Saddam Hussein was in power and they thought this when Gaddafi was in power as well, right? They seem to think that Bashar al-Assad or, or the Ba'athist government is a stable presence in the Middle East for however horrible he is, right? So why remove somebody from power if he's going to provide that stability, right? No matter how bad it is. And I think that that view of the world is wrong, right? I don't think, I think what people consider to be stability is not stable at all. And and we, we saw that in the last seven years because Bashar al-Assad did commit those atrocities he did commit mass genocide he did destabilize an entire region and the entire world really with the mass movement of of syrian refugees right and so i think and maybe if you'd like to touch upon this about what you think stability is but i think people's notion of what a stable government is is misguided and wrong well what do you mean like why do you think it's misguided or wrong well, I think people confuse what a, a stable government is. So, for example, in the Middle East, if I was going to look at a stable government, I would look at Israel, right? Oh, it's not – it's a country with good human rights records, and people might scoff at that, but it's a, a democracy. It's not a bastion of liberal democracy, but it is the most left-leaning or most classically liberal democracy that we have in the Middle East, right? It's it's a stable region for however you want to define it right and so that is stability that is not a government that i think we should upend or right just totally demolish right and so people when people say well Charles Assad is a, a stable force in the region i think that they are confused or not understanding what a stable government looks like right and so that's what i mean by what where i think Bashar al-Assad should be removed from power because he is not stable by any metric, right? This is a man who we know was trying to build nuclear weapons, right? This is what Mossad, the Israeli secret intelligence, was telling us, right? Just I think it was about a few months ago that they released that report. Um, we know that they were trying to get nuclear weapons. We know that they were funneling jihadists. They were funding and harboring jihadists, right, to help with the uprising of the Islamic State. We know that they were killing you know, dissidents, through mass murdering people. So I don't know by what metric that is a stable government. And so that's why I think people are confused or, or not honestly dealing with the issue of what a, a stable government is. Right. I kind of just want to play devil's advocate here for a second because I, I do completely agree with you that as far as a Middle Eastern presence that is a completely stable government is Israel. And I think that, and I'll just say right now that I think that the United States needs to continue a really strong um, alliance with Israel as well because I do think that they are probably the 
the best best government, the best presence to have right now in the Middle East. But to just play devil's advocate here, obviously a lot of the issues that Israel has had with uh, the Palestinians and people in the Gaza Strip and things of that nature, there's been a lot of bombings that are going on. There's been a lot of different you know, children that have gotten killed. And granted, I believe all of it, it is accidental, especially when it comes to civilians that are getting killed. But they do look at them, a lot of people in the world look at Israel as having these human uh, crime violations or these like murders of civilians, children, things of that nature, just because of essentially where they're located. So kind of by the definition that you just gave of saying like they're not going to have all these human atrocities or that they have that more stability because of you know the fact that they're democracy things of that nature a lot of people would probably argue and i'm going to say when I, these a lot of people are probably going to be other countries in the middle east you know saudi arabia jordan um egypt things of that nature but you know they'll point out all the different atrocities that israel has committed so i guess how would you defend that argument that that is a stable government though the, well, I mean, I think you just have to look at, one, the intentions of Israel and the intentions of every other Middle Eastern country. Um, and two, you just have to look at the actual human rights records, right? Israel is not, one, Israel is not punishing dissidents. Israel is not murdering apostates or blasphemers, right? They have a democracy and Two, when you look at, for example, what went on in the 2014 war in Gaza, for example, right? Hamas was using human shields, right? The reason why, so what people don't understand about Gaza, it's one of the most densely populated regions probably on earth, right? And so Hamas wasn't going out of its way to have a designated military zone, right? It was in schools, it was in hospitals, and Israel... I mean, could only be as careful as they could, right? And so, and two, one, one, Israel's intention is not to wipe out the Gaza Strip, right? It's not, its intention is not to wipe out the West Bank, right? They've been open to that two-state solution for, since 1948, right? And so, and and Hamas hasn't, been, right? The, the people that rule over in, in Gaza, and neither has the PLO, right? The PLO barely came around to a two-state solution but so yeah i just i think you have to one look at the intentions of israel israel is not trying to end gaza it's not trying to end the west bank it's not trying to be a colonial state and hamas is hamas is trying to get rid of israel right and so that's that that's basically where you have to look at is is intention and an actual human's rights record right there israel is not using human shields israel within its own borders is, is a thriving democracy, mm-hmm. right? It's just every one of its counterparts in the Middle East, right? It's, it's Muslim counterparts is trying to wipe out Israel and Israel is not trying to do the same. No, and I agree. Like I said, I just, I don't know. I've talked to, or I shouldn't say I've talked to, but I've listened to several different people that have talked about Israel as far as like, if they believe it should be essentially an independent state, things of that nature. But or if they feel like it has the right to exist. And a lot of people, granted, these are, like I said, a lot of people that are from governments of Saudi Arabia, (coughs) Jordan, Syria, Egypt, stuff like that, but they point to a lot of the different atrocities or what they call atrocities that Israel is essentially committed in their human right violations and things of that nature. So that's kind of why I just wanted to try to play devil's advocate when you said that it is considered essentially Mm. stable. So does that make sense? Yeah. Does that kind of make sense? No, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And, I mean, in order for that argument to work right that they're making it would be israel would have to be (laughs) israel would have to be committing genocide israel would and some people would argue that it is but it's totally farcical claim right israel would have to be committing genocide israel would have to be supporting right some kind of jewish extremist terrorists that are blowing themselves up in the west bank or in lebanon or right somewhere right it just that's not the case that Israel is is funding extremists. It's not it's not murdering its own citizens, right? It's not committing mass genocide 
as if it was nothing, right? It's just if Israel committed the same atrocities, right? The Syrian war, right? It's estimated that the Syrian war has killed probably 600,000 people, right? That's probably a conservative estimate, right? Bashar al-Assad is probably responsible for what? 400,000 of those deaths just through indiscriminate bombing and chemical weapons and that's probably right, a whatever it is. Guess too. Yeah, and so if Israel had killed 400,000 people within Israel, right? Let's say Tel Aviv just all of a sudden went into some mass uproar, right? If Israel had murdered every citizen of Tel Aviv, we would it would be the end of Israel, right? And so Israel scrutinized in a way that any other Middle Eastern country isn't. And so I think it's just it's totally unfair for people to say that Israel has you know, we can just compare Israel to every other Middle Eastern country. It's just it's not true. No, and I, I think the point that you're trying to originally make uh, is that if we want stability essentially in the Middle East and maybe not like perfect stability, but if we want to have at least a presence that it's easy to negotiate with and that we can essentially have good diplomatic relationships with, we need to look to Israel to essentially have countries like that in the Middle East essentially to have these good relationships in the Middle East. Is that is that kind of what you were going with? Yeah. Yeah, and then just to reiterate the point, I think we need a commitment from, like you were saying, other countries, the world, and the United States as well to these countries. So we, we touched a little bit on Arab Spring, but the Arab Spring was a perfect time to support and back the people of the Middle East and some African nations to bring democracy and at least attempt a, a stabilization project. Not to say that it's going to succeed, right? Democracy and even stability are very difficult things to bring about, right? And you need the dials to be turned in a certain way in order to make it work. But at the very least, we could have supported these movements and we didn't do that, right? And in 2011, which brings me back to somebody like Samantha Power, she was she wrote the book on genocide and she stood by as the ambassador of the united nations while obama failed to do anything about the genocide that assad is responsible for and so we can't have that right we need a, a message as a global community that we're going to help people that are wanting to help themselves that want democracy and that want stability no i agree and I don't know if this is maybe the best podcast to get into it, and maybe we can touch upon it on another one, but uh, we've mentioned the Arab Spring a few different times. Uh, do you kind of want to explain to our listeners what the Arab Spring was? Because, I don't know, maybe a little history might be a beneficial form there, or do you think that's something we should cover on another another episode? Uh, no, yeah, we can uh, touch on it a little bit. Um, so basically the Arab Spring was a mass uprising that happened in 2011 um it happened in tunisia uh basically there was government suppression and the government of ben sisi was just heavily suppressing people and a basically a tunisian street cart vendor named mohammed bozizi lights himself on fire this self-immolation video goes viral and he lights himself on fire in protest of the government of tunisia right so for uh, his name is ben ali the leader of tunisia at the time um he lights himself on fire and that basically i guess rather grossly but or macabre sparks the the rest of the arab spring right and so this was a movement a liberal movement and i don't use the word liberal in a, in a left-right dichotomy that we would use here in the united states but i mean liberal or as in classically liberal right a, a westernization movement a democratization movement for better governments right this happened in tunisia as i mentioned this happened in libya this happened in syria this happened um it mildly happened in iraq right um and pretty much this happened throughout the entire arab world um where citizens of those countries were revolting against you know the people in power this famously happened in egypt right um the arab spring overthrew the government that was in power for 30 years um so yeah that was what the arab spring was able to accomplish and we mildly helped citizens of a, of a few countries for example libya where we did implement you know, an intervention policy we did 
provide airstrikes and the government of uh, Muammar Gaddafi was overthrown, um, a lot of people, rightly or wrongly, really contend with that decision. But we did help the citizens of Libya, and Gaddafi was overthrown. But anyway, as a, as a whole, Arab Spring was was a movement within the Arab world to, to bring democratization and a, a more liberal process into their governments. Okay. Yeah, I just I figure that's kind of important to give a little bit of backstory when it comes to Syria. And I guess how did that directly affect like the power struggle that's now going on in Syria? Right. So in 2011, when the citizens of Damascus and uh, Damascus being the capital, but the citizens of Syria started revolting and they started you know, mass protesting. They started saying that, you know, down with the government of Assad. Right. Um, Assad initially doesn't do anything, but then he starts using violence against people. Basically, the violence escalates and people defect. So you started forming, a, for example, a Free Syrian Army. Uh, which later turned into the Syrian Democratic Forces, which you saw an alliance between the Free Syrian Army and, and the Kurdish people. But basically how that contributed to destabilization of Syria was Syria revolted into a civil war, right? And so in the civil war, the indiscriminate bombing started to happen and the death toll started to rise. And then within that chaos, you saw the rise of the Islamic State, right, the caliphate, where... Um, what's his name? Al-Baghdadi claims that he was a caliph, and this was in the city of Raqqa, uh, which is in Syria. He claims that he's a caliph, and ISIS takes over an area the size of Great Britain in Syria and in Iraq. Right. So that's that destabilization, that civil war that broke out in Syria because of Assad and because of the rise of the Islamic State, which Assad helped facilitate, you saw a total destabilization of the region. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I don't know. I just thought that a little bit of backstory would probably be beneficial to kind of everything that we just talked about. So. Yeah. Cool. Well, do you have any uh, any final thoughts? Anything that you wanted to touch upon that you think we missed? Uh, no, I think we. I mean, it's a broad to topic. I think we can talk about it for a long time, but. I mean, yeah. There's a I lot think... of different things you could go into with it. Yeah, but yeah, I think uh, that was a good overview and. I think we touched on a lot. Yeah. <coughs> well, yeah. Uh, you want to touch on the Patreon Sargon thing? I don't know if you follow that one. Uh, you know, I've only heard a little bit about it, but basically mm. kind of what I have heard is that he was dropped by Patreon, and he was making close to, what was it, like 7000 a week or something like that from it? But they dropped him because he was talking about something that like, you can't necessarily like say this but he wasn't necessarily promoting like racism or anything like that and they dropped him for it because they deemed it to be racist if that's kind of the story i picked up but anyway if you want i'll let yeah, you yeah kind of you should read into it, it but yeah oh yeah yeah if you want no yeah i mean i <coughs> kind of go with it best i can so cool the biggest thing so yeah I've... sargon oh, what's sorry. that oh go ahead yeah so the next thing is uh the sargon of a cod thing uh sargon is a a YouTuber, um, his name is Carl Benjamin, but he gained popularity basically, I want to say, three, four years ago. That's when I started watching his videos. Um, he was really, he's one of the main people for Gamergate. Some people will be familiar with that. But anyway, he just started, stayed on YouTube, was making more videos. He was a prominent atheist. He was kind of one of the people that was in shock and how the left responded to people like Milo Yiannopoulos, right? Who was mm -hmm. famous in, what was it, 2016? Yeah. For being a provocateur. Um, so yeah, he just kind of stayed relevant. He was, then I, I want to say about a year ago, his opinions started to get a little bit weird and he started going into the more race realist opinions of the Jared Taylors and the Stefan Molyneux. Uh, and then he started getting into the whole Kekistan thing, which was like a weird counterculture thing about people not understanding the internet, I guess. I don't know. But <laughs> I didn't really follow the Kekistan thing. Anyway, um, I think it was a few weeks ago, Sargon was actually kicked off of Patreon. And Patreon has had issues before. And 
if you don't know, Patreon is a is a mobile platform or an online platform where you can pay people for their content that they uh, create. Um, but anyway, he was kicked off of Patreon, and Patreon has had issues before about kicking people off for their political views, right? And so they had a famous one with that. Who's that white girl that got kicked off for <laughs> stopping people on that boat in Italy? Oh, uh, Lauren Southern. Uh, I forgot her, her name. It's not Lauren it's Southern, a... is it? Oh, do we lose? Uh, we lose audio. Uh, oh, yeah, Jerry. I think I lost audio here. Put a video. Hey, you there? Uh, we lost audio with you there for a second when you were talking about that uh, that girl that was a. Uh... Yeah, Lauren Southern. Yeah, Lauren Southern. I'm gonna just uh, yeah, that was her. Drop the uh, video portion of it real quick to see if that helps, so we don't lose any more uh, audio real quick. All right. <coughs> Let's see if that helps, so we don't have any. Any more loss in audio, but anyway, sorry. Continue. Cool. So yeah, Lauren Southern um, was kicked off of Patreon for. If you don't know, Lauren Southern is a right-wing kind of identitarian who's very against the uh, Syrian migrants. Another reason why the Syrian thing was relevant. <laughs> but uh, anyway, she gets on YouTube and she basically stops a boat of Syrian migrants from crossing into Italy. Um, Patreon kicks her off, and a lot of very prominent YouTubers and content creators are worried that you know if Patreon is kicking somebody off for a very very clearly defined political stance, what are they going to do when these YouTubers or content creators say something that Patreon doesn't like? Right? Are they all of a sudden at the whim of whatever Patreon decides? Right? And so, fast forward to you know now two three weeks from now. Right, Patreon defends themselves. They say, no, 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 it was just because Lauren crossed the line, but it's not going to happen. You don't have to be worried. So now, two, three weeks ago, they kick off Sargon of Akkad, and Sargon, they kicked him off because, and as I mentioned, he was more into the, the race realist stuff. I understand the story correctly. He was talking to a pair of, or a couple of white realists, I guess, and he calls them the N-word, and he basically just wasn't calling black people the n-word but he was saying it in a way where he was kind of being offensive to them if that makes sense he, he wasn't calling black people the n-word but he was just saying he was just calling them that as like as they would call black people that if that makes sense yeah and and so patreon takes a look and they deem sargon's behavior to be you know unethical and they decide to kick him off their platform and then you have a backlash from people like dave rubin jordan peterson um sam harris who basically decide that they don't want their content or they don't want to be just they don't want to don't want to be scared to put controversial material out and then have their support pulled by patreon because patreon didn't like what they had to say yeah so that reminded me of a few different things. Um, one, I think that's huge that somebody like Sam Harris, who at the very beginning of all of his podcast, um, he always talks about essentially why he doesn't take sponsorship from people. It's essentially for exactly kind of what you just talked about here. He's worried that, you know, those sponsors will try to limit what he says or who he brings on his episodes or anything like that. And that's why he talks about how he feels it's so important that people actually are willing to donate to give to his time so to take away his his membership or to essentially pull himself off of patreon i think is a sends a big message to patreon saying like hey you know i don't support what you're doing obviously you were getting a lot of money from me because sam harris is a pretty widely known name and he probably had quite a few patreon supporters but some of the other things that kind of reminded me of is it just seems like where are we going with this nobody's allowing any type of free speech because if patreon's going to start pulling from people you know, Lauren Southern, um, uh, why am I drawing a blank on the guy that we we're just talking about here? Um, Sargon. Yes. Thank you. It seems like that's the way everything <coughs> is going because Facebook is now limiting people's 
speech on there, what they deemed to be hate speech and not hate speech. You know, YouTube can go ahead and demonetize people or go ahead and take off their videos what they deem to be hate speech or racist or anything like that. And then Twitter, which will go ahead and ban you as well for certain amounts of time until you re-agree to their terms and conditions because of all these different things that they're deeming to be hate speech. It just seems like where is the actual free speech in any of these things and is any of these companies actually seem to support the free speech? You know, this... Yeah, I don't... It's weird because... So I, I guess I have two opinions. One, these countries don't have a responsibility to be... They, they're private businesses. They much decide who can be on their platform and who, who who can't, right? And so, because they are those private businesses, they don't they're not held to the same standard as a government, right? But by that same token, I think I think these businesses have set themselves up to be the exclusive providers of certain content and. I, I guess they do have, I guess at the very least, a social responsibility to not limit who we can listen to, right? It's just, if Twitter's going to be the only place where news is spread, right, and then Twitter decides to modulate that speech, right, then is anybody really going to go on some secondary platform? I don't think so. And so, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't think that these companies should put themselves in the business of moderating speech. No, and I, I think that's why something like Patreon especially shouldn't be because, let's say for example, you and I were supporting, whatever. Let's just name a random person who's on Patreon. The thing is, is we can go ahead if we decided, for example, you know, John Smith over there is talking about something that we don't agree with, and he, you know, we were giving him support over the years because we did like his content, but he starts coming out with more and more content that we just continue to disagree with. We can go ahead and pull our funding from that, so we're no longer actually supporting his show financially. And I think that's the way it should be because that's, you know, I can now go ahead and take that money that I didn't didn't want to give to John Smith over there, and I can go ahead and give it to Joe Bob over here and start giving him my different, you know, funding because I like the content that he's putting out and then eventually that's going to hurt, you know, John Smith more than it's going to hurt Patreon for example saying like no, you can't listen to that because they'll still be getting my money one way or another, but it'll just be going to a different person. So I don't think that yeah. that's a very good business plan for somebody like Patreon right there. Plus it allows for another company to come in and start up and say, you know, Patreon's limiting people's speech we're not going to do that. You know, we'll go ahead and give them the money that they're requesting. You know, come and take your money from Patreon and give them to us. It just seems like it's another way that Patreon would lose, I don't know, lose funding, lose different people supporting supporting Patreon, essentially. Yeah, true. And that's, that's why I think it was important for a lot of these people like Jordan Peterson, Sam Harris, and Dave Rubin to kind of pull the support from Patreon. I think it even though they don't agree with Sargon, I think it was important for them to finally stand up and say, look, you're either, you're either a service that people can pay into and you know, allow the content creator to decide what gets out and you allow the public to decide what's acceptable. But you know, all you really have to do is just be the, be the service where we can you know, get paid for the content that we create, right? And so it was good that these creators decided to pull their support from Patreon. And so, I, yeah, I think Patreon kind of dropped the ball here. I think that they could have even publicly stated, we don't support Sargon. We don't support what he's doing, but oh, his account, right? That would have been a more moral and ethical decision to take, and I would have respected it more. Yeah, and I don't know. I just It's driving me crazy that it seems like everywhere you turn now, people... And I agree with what you're saying that as far as, you know, they are independent businesses, so they don't have to essentially apply to the different rules of, you know, like, this is what the Constitution says, you have the right to free speech, blah, blah, blah. But I just feel like that's, it just goes to show the importance of free speech, though, because when you start censoring people, you think you're going to lose business, kind of like they did with people, like I said, Sam Harris, Dave Rubin, Jordan Peterson. And it's just, I don't know, it's, it's going to probably be more beneficial in the long run for I, I guess I don't know where I'm trying to go with this but I, I just want to say that I think like 
it's not right for any type of company to go ahead and limit someone's free speech and i think it's going to be detrimental to said company anytime they try to do that i just yeah i agree so i don't think that these i don't think that these very unethical companies deserve or should be in any position to tell us what is ethical and what is not i mean you have a company like facebook that is trying to protect us from evil speech and meanwhile they're selling all of our information to the highest bidder so these are very unethical companies they're very cutthroat they've done everything they can to be in the position that they're in and i just don't think that they're really in a position to say who we can listen to and who we can't listen to and so if facebook wants to take a public stand that's fine you you're a business and you're you, you can take whatever stance you want but i think that they should never limit people or ban people or right or just remove people from their platform because i think that ultimately if you push people to fringes and if you make it taboo to even discuss those people or bring those people up then that's where you get sort of like these little pockets of weirdness right and you get you get a movement that is cultivated around these personalities that are on the outskirts and nobody's there to challenge those ideas nobody's there to really discuss in reality what those ideas are and so I, I never think that we should limit speech i never think that we should ban people or push people to the outskirts yeah and i mean just because you don't agree with them doesn't mean that you have the right to say that like yeah i don't know like just because i don't agree with you i don't want to hear you that anybody should be censored but what's kind of in the uh i don't know besides everything that's been going on like jordan peterson sam harris people like that pulling their patreon um accounts how has this kind of impacted Sargon, I guess, instead, not just financially, but like, what all has been going on with him since this? Uh, I don't know. I haven't followed. I think his, well, his Twitter account was removed. I don't know if he has a Facebook page, but he was pulled from Patreon, so I'm sure he's struggling financially. So yeah, I don't really know what he's had to say about it, actually. Huh. I'd be interested to find out. Yeah, right. Yeah, it'd be something, something worth looking into. Yeah, but but yeah, I agree. I don't think these companies should be the arbiter of good speech versus bad speech. Worst case scenario, sweet lady capitalism steps in, and some other company that's got Patreon type, I don't know, I, I don't know, does the same thing Patreon does. You could start having seeing a lot of people start putting their business there, and. Maybe they'll be more open to free speech, at least hopefully anyway. Yeah, true. I mean, there has to be enough of a movement for a company like that to be viable. But yeah, I agree. I think another company that does the same thing that Patreon does needs to step in and you know be the, the company that's going to stand for free speech. Yeah, I mean, you'd hope so anyway. Yeah. Anyway, is that kind of... All that's been going on with that one, or is there a little bit more to it? Or because I, no, I honestly I think... haven't been following it uh, very much. Oh, okay, just, gotcha. uh Kind of read up on it yesterday and today, so I was just curious if there's yeah. more to the story than that. No, that was that was pretty much it. Okay. Um, yeah, that one covers that one. Nice. Well, did you have anything else that you wanted to to chat about, or is that kind of what you were just on your mind today or feeling? Yeah, I think that those two topics, and then uh, I'd really like to discuss the nuclear deterrence probably on Saturday here, if Willie's able to come on. You know, that's one I've been looking into a lot, and I think that would be a lot of a lot of fun to talk talk about. And it's obviously got a lot of history to it, and history's kind of right in my wheelhouse. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just there's a lot of different opinions, a lot of different. It's easy to go back and forth with that one just because there are so many different arguments on both sides of the aisle with that one that you can agree and disagree with. So that one would be probably a lot of fun to yeah. get into. Yeah, Definitely let's do it. Yeah. A little teaser one. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, so next episode, nuclear deterrence. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> but Cool. Well, that's all I've got for tonight, um, unless you had anything else. No, I think that's it. Cool. Um, as always, you guys can always find us on... Uh, our website, which is theowlpodcast.fireside.fm. Um, we're on Twitter, at owl underscore podcast. And then uh, you can always email us, too, at theowlpodcast at gmail.com. Um, 
we are going to be doing some joint podcasts as well with a couple of different uh, podcasters. Uh, I was just recently on one. It was called uh, Time for Your Hobby, where we talked a little bit about the podcast here and uh, a little bit about how we got set up, you know, why we chose the topics we did, how we kind of do things. Um, should be coming out here in the next couple weeks, but then we're going to actually have the host of that uh, podcast on our show here as well. And then we have uh, a couple other different ones from just around the United States. Uh, there's a guy that's going to be an anesthesiologist that's coming on. A couple other podcasters, one that's over in Japan. So should be fun. We'll have a lot of different people on here. Um, we're not sure exactly how we're going to go with it, whether we're going to interview them about their show or if we're just going to kind of have them on as guests to try to get a little bit of a stir the pot thing going but either way it's going to be fun and then uh we did just do an episode where we had uh, one of our listeners on and we talked a little bit more about the episode jerry and i did about uh guns and brett kavanaugh so and that's kind of a two-part episode too which is is pretty fun so yeah cool um, nice that's all i've got so yeah uh, and uh i think i'm going to be doing a podcast here with my brother um i think either tomorrow or friday but we've been talking about uh jared taylor a lot i don't know if you know who jared taylor is but he is a what you'd call like a white ethno state person i guess uh, a lot of people describe him as a white supremacist or racist but uh we're gonna delve into his ideas what i think he's saying and if he's racist or not um so yeah should be an interesting discussion yeah sounds good um yeah. all right well then i guess i will talk to you on saturday all right sounds good all right. all right well thanks for being offended with us all right later later bud